This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. David Anderson, professor of museum education in the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy at the University of British Columbia. His most recent publication is Memories of Manga, Impact and Nostalgic Recollections of Visiting a Manga Museum, forthcoming in Curator. Dr. Anderson, thank you for being here. Thanks, Tristan, for having me. So in your recent research, you've talked a lot about historical memory, mm. particularly of the Showa period. But uh, what does it that interests you, first and foremost, about historical memory in general? Mm-hmm. Well, I sort of came to this area of research through my um, discipline area, which is museum education. And one of the big questions in museums these days is around impact. So I started to do a lot of um, research along a trajectory of what is the impact of visiting a museum. And uh, I did some of this uh research in the field of um, uh, world expositions because I was very interested in very long chronologically distant memories and uh, world expositions are a very convenient um, point or location in, in history to be able to identify and then talk to people about their experiences. Um, and that, that led me to wanting to investigate a case in Japan, in particular Osaka Bumpaku, yeah. the 1970 world exposition in Osaka. And uh, that led to uh, another line of trajectory research, which led to nostalgic memory. And, of course, doing those studies about Bumpaku revealed a tremendous lot of nostalgic memory, particularly amongst the Japanese participants who were the subjects of my study. So that led me down this course of looking at nostalgia, memory, and in particular, historical consciousness around those distant memories. So our project is, you know, a theme about Meiji, but I mean, I think some of the same issues around historical memory would, would be very similar. So what is it that attracted you to the Showa period in particular? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, because my field is also visitor studies, I'm interested in talking to live people, real people, <laughs> um, who have visited museums and uh, had experienced things. And, uh, of course, there are still plenty of people around who uh, live through Showa, early Showa even, uh, not so many people in uh, <laughs> Meiji and Taisho periods, but lots of people in early Showa who are uh, seniors these days. And um, I found through my other research that talking to seniors, uh, people who are 60 and older, they provide very, very rich data because old people love to talk. And uh, when they start to talk about their experiences in life, you find that there's a very, very rich discourse. Part of that is because when you're in the latter stages of your life, you're very apt to reflect on your life and on the events that have been significant to you. So when I talk to older participants, I find that there's a tremendous uh, willingness to share their life stories, a tremendous willingness to be reflective about life and their own experiences and the the meanings that they have um, generated through their own experiences. And they want to share this with other people. Mm -hmm. So I find that the data to be tremendously rich and a very fertile ground to try to understand um, people's distant memories. And I, and I think in particular, you know, when I think about um, Showa, in particular I'm interested in the Showa period, Showa 30 to 45, so uh, 1955 to 1970. Um, we all know this was a very vibrant period of, of uh, Japanese uh, history, uh, in particular uh, 10 years after the war, so uh, immediately after World War II there's tremendous devastation across the nation, uh, a lot of difficulty in the recovery period, and even up to 1955, of course, they're still recovering. There's a lot of difficulties that they're facing. But it's just starting to see the light in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And um, when I talk to older participants about this period, 
they always light up and you know have a lot of beaming wonderful stories to tell now i'm curious you're talking about the the reaction of the seniors when they go to the museum in many ways that's depicting their own history yes but the curators i imagine aren't necessarily seniors right so that's that's true and so is there some tension between the memories that the senior citizens have and and the historical narrative that's being put forward by curators well, it depends on the museum itself. So my research in Japan has covered quite a lot of different institutions uh, of Showa era. So I've looked at, for example, um, the Showa Early Lifestyle Museum in Kitanagoya, um, uh, an early Showa period house, which is set up in its original um, format, just as it was in, in Showa period with all the kitchen utensils and so on. So there's that one. And I've also looked at um, railway museums, so in particular the JR Museum that was in Bentencho mm -hmm. in uh, Osaka. It's now closed and become part of the uh, Kyoto Railway Museum, but I looked at that. So old dentures and uh, people's memories of riding old trains and these kinds of things. And uh, also the uh, Osama Tezuka Manga Museum in, in Takarazuka. Mm -hmm. So that's a very interesting museum for nostalgic memory because mm -hmm. um, you know memories of uh, Osama's or Tezuka's work uh, feature very heavily in this uh, short while period, 30 to um, 45. So it depends on the museum institution and how it's represented. And even amongst the, the Showa museums, there's different kinds of varieties. So Showa Khan in Tokyo has um, uh, perhaps more of a wartime mm -hmm. slant. So it takes you through the entire period of Showa, pre-war through to, to um, the 80s. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one in Kita Nagoya is very much centered on, on uh, objects, uh, in independent of the narrative and the stories behind those. So people look at the objects and they immediately associate the objects with their own life without the interpretation that might be imposed by a curator. So I would say, for example, Shorwa Khan is very much curatorial driven. The, the one in Kita Nagoya is very much object based and people bring their own interpretations of the objects and the stories. So it depends. And it also depends on the, on the age of the individual. So of course, younger people, uh, who didn't experience uh, many of these Showa objects and things personally, have a, vi a vicarious um, experience. So they're, oh, that's what mum used to talk about or something like that, whereas people who actually lived through the era, growing up, um, for example, in their childhood, played with toys, have first-hand knowledge and experience and have different kinds of experience. So your age depends on the museum. It depends sure. on, for example, whether you're a tourist, whether it's your local vicinity. Lots of different things impact the, the experience that people have. I guess with, with the Showa Khan, I, I, I believe the Japan Bereaved Families Association was, was very involved in, in that one, so that might explain uh, some of the wartime focus. Yes, also the fact that it's near the Yasukuni Shrine. Right, right, right. So that has a very strong association because we know some of the history of that particular shrine and the association with the war. And so these two factors coming together in proximity Sorry. give it a wartime focus. So there's not there's not one uh, homogeneous narrative, basically. No, there's not a homogeneous narrative. But I, w I would say that most visitors tend to um, construct Showa uh, in, t in very positive terms, even though mm -hmm. there are lots of negatives uh, emotionally associated with Showa. So struggling through the wartime period, um, the, the defeat, reconstruction, all these kinds of things are very negative. Riots in the 1960s. Riots, pollution problems, environmental problems. Fears of nuclear fallout. Uh, Okinawa, <laughs> all manner of things were going on. 
but you find when you talk to people that that they tend to focus on the positive. Now, I know that's in part something of the Japanese disposition to want to focus on the positive things, but but I believe genuinely there is a reconstruction going on in many things. So even though, yeah, it was difficult, it was tough, we were poor, we were, you know, mother struggled hard, uh, we didn't have any things, we were happy. <laughs> so you find that narrative coming through very often. And so in some ways it's the, the museums and are kind of reinforcing this narrative and creating this popular... In, in some ways they are. In uh, some ways they are. Uh, by the selection of the objects that they 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 portray. And that's that's a well-known phenomenon if you read some of the works of Crane and MacDonald. So the selection of objects that a, a curator might choose, of course, critically influences the experience mm -hmm. and then the subsequent memories that are retrieved and then their emotional state that they have as they come out of that museum. So many of the objects you mentioned, toys, nostalgic items perhaps... Yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, household items, um, uh, you th things that, you know, you, yourself as a third-party foreigner even coming in, you would think, how is that so exciting to you? Uh, but, it, you know, uh, objects like um, like uh, senbei makers, you know, you put a little blob of rice in a, you know, a iron and you put it in the fire and you turn it. You know, the stories that come out um, from a simple object like that are, are amazing, you know, because the object is not just the object. The object is the channel or the medium that unlocks sure. the identity of the individual. And so when they see the object, the object is just a piece of tin or plastic or whatever it is, but embedded in that object is, is a whole lifetime of narrative, story, people, associations, relationships, community, right. uh, place, context, all kinds of things. Recently, there's been seemingly a resurgence in nostalgia for the Showa period. Uh, I mean, I, I'm reminded of the always sunny, or mm. uh, always... Mm. It, it always... Uh, I always want to say always sunset sunny. on something gaudy. <laughs> it's not always sunny in Philadelphia. That's a different <laughs> show. <laughs> I, I, I know the one. <laughs> always sunset on Third Street. That's the one. Right. That's and there, the there's, one. A, there's a TV series, a movie series. Yes. Uh, the works of Dazai Osamu from the immediate post-war yes. kind of had a resurgence. What do we what do we make of this? Yes, well, once again, it depends on your your age um, as to your response to this. Uh, but for certainly older people, um, there is there is a longing to return to a simpler time, and I think that's what those always uh, series and other kinds of TV representations of Shawa period conjure up. So, ah, uh, life was uh, simple but wonderful then. You know, and uh, I think if you you have to contextualize the the present to understand people's reaction to the past. Right, sure. uh, in historic consciousness, this is a very well known and appreciated um, principle. So, if we look at Japan today, there are lots of things which make people feel very uncomfortable and unstable, particularly older people. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, keizai pinchi. You know, the economy's stressful, yeah. and they're worrying about whether they have enough money. Right. They're worrying about their health. They're worrying about uh, their own security. Uh, they're worrying about the relationship with Japan's neighbours. Sure. Uh, you know, with the the issues going on with with both China and Russia. Uh, they're concerned about um, the effects of man-made and, and natural disasters. So Tohoku, um, uh, Daishin, and tsunami. 
they're concerned about uh, the fallout from Fukushima. There's a lot of things worrying people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you talk to, to older people, when they see this always series and they think back on Showa objects, they think, ah, oh, life was so much simpler and good back then. And, and also, you know, with the urbanization of Japan, there's um, increasing isolation mm-hmm. going on. So if you think about um, modern-day Japan, there is tremendous social isolation. So everybody lives in uh, condominium blocks and you don't know your neighbours and there is uh, tremendous social disassociation from people. But in Shawa, that wasn't the case. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, so particularly in rural areas, you knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody. And you're dependent in some ways, in many ways, on your neighbours, particularly in post-war reconstruction uh, period and recovery. You needed the support of others to get by. You needed people to help you work the farm. You needed people to help you uh, in rice production. You needed to come together, and everybody did. And so everybody knew one another. And I think also, you know, we're talking about uh, post-war shore by the 50s. Uh, this was the, the baby boomer generation, so there's lots and lots and lots of kids around. So uh, by comparison today, I think... I think Shawa, the average number of kids was six. Mm-hmm. Post-war Shawa, six kids, and now it's one now point it's, something, yeah. one point something right. in many instances. Yeah. So the number of kids in society is yeah. very much different in present-day Japan compared to um, uh, uh, post-war Shawa. So the society was vibrant. Um, there were lots of kids out there. Um, lots of kids interact with one another. If you were lucky, you lived in a, 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 a one LDK, and um, because you had six kids, all those kids had to get out of the the one LDK, otherwise you'd go crazy. And so kids were out there in the community. There was no internet, there was no uh, cell phone, there were no other toys. So kids made their own play. So the richness of social interaction was very, very high. Uh, and as a result of that, when these older people think back about those periods, I think, wow. We were all together, you know. We had wonderful social connections. We had wonderful trust of one another. Uh, there's a wonderful quote in one of my articles that I, I recently wrote about Shawa memories, and um, one of the participants talks about the fact that their neighbours would often come to their house to take them to the to the public centre, to the public bathhouse, and uh, such was the trust. You know, and I was thinking, would that happen today? Would you trust your neighbour to come and grab your kids, take them to the public bathhouse? Probably not. That wouldn't happen. But it speaks to the relationships that people had in those days, which is lost. So modern-day Japan doesn't look anything like post-war Shorwan these days. But there is a pining when people see this to go back to those periods in their mind and in their hearts. I think those two... Those two things you brought up are, are really key because there's a narrative now of the contemporary precarity of Japan. You know, the, the kind of precarious situation it's finding itself in economically, demographically, diplomatically. But as we talked about earlier, you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s, like, these weren't incredibly peaceful mm. times, right? right. There's, right. There was precarity all throughout Absolutely. Japanese post-war Absolutely. history. So, so to say, you know, anything the contemporary phenomenon are entirely because of you know a newfound precarity seems historically inaccurate but like you said in 
the 50s, the urbanization that we see in, in Tokyo now, that was really just starting in mm -hmm. the mid-50s. Mm -hmm. uh, the family sizes are much smaller now, mm -hmm. uh, far far older populations. Yes, yes. So those, those two things do really seem to be yes. a difference maker now that's leading to some of this nostalgia. Yes, and, and, and the fact that people were dependent on others, whereas nowadays they're not. You're dependent on your cell phone, you're dependent on Docomo, <laughs> you're dependent on these other... You know, innate non-human entities for survival, and uh, you know the the hikikomori phenomena is is an interesting testimony of that you don't need people. You can sit in your room mm -hmm. and uh, order your um, bento. Comes on the motorbike, gets delivered at the door. You don't have to go out. You don't have to have people mm -hmm. to survive, and you know that's a very sad thing. So when you're looking at these museums, what are some of the reactions that the older people that you've talked to have to the objects? Well, the, the, the reactions are often very, very personal. As I mentioned before, um, some objects which you think are completely um, uh, innate and mean nothing have tremendous meaning uh, to people. Um, so I, I remember um, one of the participants uh, that I was um, talking to in the Kitanagoya Museum was um, talking about the piece tobacco can. So there was a little piece tobacco uh, cylinder, just a little round can that the cigarettes used to come in. It was just innocuously on display. And um, the, the lady just went on and on and on about the memories that flooded back about piece tobacco. And she'd talk about her husband and uh, she'd talk about uh, how one day she was caught out because she used to put her uh, hisakuri, her hidden money, in one of the piece tobacco uh, cans on the shelf there hidden amongst the other piece tobacco cans and uh, one day the, the shelf fell down and the, the hisakuri spilled all over the floor and then she was terribly embarrassed and the husband saying where does all this money come from and she's <laughs> laughing away and you know the flood of personal memories that come back from these innate objects is just profound and because I'm dealing with older people as I said before they're very apt to talk to you about these personal stories and share with you you know those events that that are hidden uh, very, often very latent. They, ha they hadn't thought about these memories in many, many years. Mm -hmm. But encountering these objects in museums tends to be the key that unlocks sure. the vault of the, the identity of the person and who they are, their, their stories, their relationships, their connections. And so it, it's a tremendously rewarding experience as a researcher to talk to people about these things because, because you are un unlocking vaults. You are unlocking vaults of treasure of personal life histories that is situated, of course, in time and in place and in context, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, to hear it all come out, you, you, you get a much deeper understanding of the nature of, of Japanese society uh, and what it was like and what they valued and what they thought was important and um, you know, the nature and character of, of life in that period comes flooding out in a tremendously visceral way you know and uh, so I do I do both qualitative and quantitative research so part of my work is in memory psychology so I'm looking for factors um, uh, statistically which help me understand why memories are being encoded the way they are but uh, but I, as you can hear from my discussions I do qualitative work also so hearing the narrative of, of people's stories and uh, and trying to capture that and convey that to the present-day reader so to capture the stories of the past and to represent it to others so they can understand that uh, what I like to call as an ephemeral vista. It was, it was there temporarily in the past and now it's gone. 
but to bring it back to life and to bring it back to the present to help people understand the origins of where these people came from, I think is very, very important and very gratifying to me as a researcher. These stories of how the visitors to the museum reacting, I mean, it, it, like you said, it really tells us a lot about Japanese society and, mm. and Japanese historical memory. From the curator's side of the story, how, do we, how does the curator evoke those things and how can we tell that story as curators to other visitors who d perhaps don't have the possibility of talking to, you know, having that kind of researcher's ability to talk to other visitors? I think it's I think it's it's a very reasonable course of action for a curator to try to bring an interpretation of the past. And if you go to museums like Shorwa Khan, they they do do this. They do try to bring a representation. They do try to bring an accurate representation historically of what happened and what went on and factually. And but you know, as as much as they do do this, I, my experience in interviewing people afterwards is that tends to get bypassed, mm -hmm. and then their personal stories come out. Yeah, this happened to me. Oh, I saw that thing, and and that was what my mother used. Oh, I saw that, and I remember we used to have that at school. And so that the personal connections trump the curator's attempt to portray a story. And that's not to say that the curator shouldn't do that. It's just that when when we look at the impact later on, of course, it's the personal things, the things that relate to the individual that come out more dominantly. Uh, so I'm all for curators trying to to accurately represent stories and present those stories. That's very, very important. And it's particularly important for younger um, generations visiting the museum who haven't had those experiences. But for the people who have had the experiences, the personal connections with the objects trumps the, the curator's valiant attempts to tell a story. And you almost want to include those stories in the exhibit themselves. Sure, sure, you do. I haven't talked much about the younger people in, in my discussion so far, but as I said, you know, people's memories of these things is a function of your age and wh when you grew up and, and so on, and also where you grew up too, so rural versus urban areas and so on. Uh, but but today in Japan, you know, the Shorewa is, is considered kakoi. It's a very cool thing. And it's, it's rather interesting, um, the resurgence of uh, Shorewa based electrical appliances. So if you go into uh, Tokyo Hands or these kinds of places, you see these old Showa designed uh, toasters and, and mixed masters and blenders and things like that. And of course they're modern electric appliances, but they look Showa Jedi. So it, it's very interesting to, to see that even the marketers uh, in, in the commercial sectors in Japan are, are jumping on this bandwagon. Uh, to sell these kakoi shorwa mono, <laughs> you know. So, so once again, this is a, a vicarious reconstruction for younger people. So, people in their in their twenties and thirties, they they didn't live through this period, uh, but they think it's cool. I should say it's not just it's not just material objects. So, I, one of the museums that I looked at was uh, the Osama Tezuka Manga Museum, and you know, manga is uh, of course it's in books, but it's also uh, in anime and uh, television, film, and these kinds of things. And I find that this is a tremendously uh, wonderful source of nostalgic memory for uh, many Japanese people, young and old. And of course, we, you know, we all know that uh, uh, Osama Tezuka was a very influential uh, manga artist and had tremendous influence. And 
when I talk to people about Osama Tezuka's work, they very often can associate these memories in, in terms of time, place, what they were doing, who they were with, and also very positively in terms of their own play, so personifying uh, 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 atom flying through the, the sky with their Ferrovskis tied around their neck and so on. Um, but also they talk about it in terms of, of the moral uh, lessons that, that are conveyed through uh, Osama Tezuka's work. So that's a very interesting phenomena. So, and it connects very much with people's memories of Shawa. So people perceive Shawa to be a very moral period, very socially moral period, um, where there were social orders going on. Everybody respected one another. Everybody knew their place in the hierarchy of things. And everybody respected one another's property. There was very little uh, theft crime. Uh, there was uh, very you know, low incidences of crime in the street and so on. So people associate Shawa with positive morals. And there is a connection also with Osama Tezuka's work in terms of morals. So uh, I had a number of intergenerational families, so grandmothers, mothers, and children coming along to the museum and wanting to, to uh, show their own kids uh, Osama Tezuka's work, even though it's not, you know, so dominant in society these days. They wanted to show it because they perceived that these are moral values that uh, Osama Tezuka was conveying that their kids should also appreciate. So it's interesting to see these these uh, non-tangible uh, media also having very strong influence nostalgically in the society. As a historian, I'm curious about the relationship between historical narrativization, historical memory, and cultural production. So in the museums, I mean, we talked, we brushed on, you know, the, the narratives that put out by the curators are, can, you know, that's one side, but then there's the historical memory part. Now, what is the relationship between these two? How is it that they're are they mutually reinforcing each other? Maybe changing over time? Do mm. we see this in uh, well, de definitely? It's changing over time because, the, as as I mentioned before, the present helps right. reinterpret the past, and you know we can't help but do this as human beings to reinterpret the past. Um, but the interesting things going on is that it's the. It's the things going on in the collective society that helps reinterpret that past. Um, so there is a dynamic influence going on. As much as um, curators strive to be historically accurate, and I sincerely believe they do uh, their very best to do this, you can't help be, but be by you can't help but be influenced by the present, right. either either in either just in terms of the selection of what you choose to talk about. Right. Okay, the present day influences this. And so you've got this reinforcing cycle, okay? What you self-select to represent then helps reinterpret that past, 
okay? And so it goes on and on. So um, I, I think I think a lot about this when it comes to grant funding. So the present day trends in grant funding, um, uh, what's popular to be funded or what's what's of interest to be funded by governments influences the knowledge production, okay? And consequently shapes the future knowledge production. Right. So, so even the objects that are put on display are somehow uh, influenced by contemporary concerns such as grant funding and what's popular to show? I, I, you know, I wouldn't deny that it plays out in curators' mind. You know, um, the issue of what's popular to show and what should be shown mm. are interesting debates. But sure, these things play out in people's mind. I mean, curators select objects specifically. They put th thought right. into it. They don't Absolutely. just randomly right. put it up there, oh, let's just put that on the shelf. Right. They, they're giving thought as to what the object means, what it represents, uh, how they believe or how they suspect that people will react to that object. And that they may be deliberately wanting to evoke emotions. So I, I think about, for example, in the Shawak Khan, there's a very interesting little little display about the uh, Kamishi Bayasan. And, you know, they, they, they chose that story, one, because it's historically interesting. There's not too many Kamishi Bayasans around these days. But it's historically interesting. But it evokes very positive emotions. You know, when people see that, they go, ah, I remember that guy. He used to give the candies out and all the kids would come running around and we'd all gather together and we'd sit down. and Oh, it was such good. And, of course, it wasn't very much entertainment back then. I mean, to have that guy come around on the bicycle and tell you stories was a big deal. When he's in town, particularly if you're in a rural area, that's a big deal. So, I mean, the selection of a story like that as a narrative... Right to portray, it, it's for sure the curator knows that this is going to get a lot of excitement from, from older audiences. It's going to evoke very positive responses. So, so there, I, think, I think there is, there is a, a careful thought goes into what gets put on display. Um, the curator wants to convey a particular narrative that they believe is historically accurate or representative or fits in with a broader theme of the mission of the museum. Uh, but also, you know, a good curator will know the kinds of objects that evoke responses. And so there is that selection process going on as well. You're talking about the narrative. It fits the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Bruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. More significant right this now. podcast would not be possible sure. without the cooperation of the UBC Centre for sure. Japanese Research and, and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.